Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week, we're looking at the crisis overtaking Sudan. Since fighting broke out in Khartoum 12 days ago, the country appears to be descending into outright civil war with intense fighting between the Sudanese army and the rapid support forces. We'll be looking at how Sudan's military split into two opposing camps, who leads and supports these armies, and what, if anything, can be done to stem the fighting. We'll also be looking more widely to the Horn of Africa and what the Sudanese crisis means for a region already racked by conflicts in Ethiopia, Somalia and beyond. With international forces evacuating Sudan, US-backed ceasefires failing, could Sudan plunge Ethiopia, Eritrea and South Sudan back into instability? What role is there for African governments in mediating this crisis? What are we to make of reports of Russia's Wagner Group operating in the conflict and possibly even adding to it? We've got a terrific panel this week. Joining me on the show this week, sitting next to me, is Rosalind Marsden, the former EU Special Representative for Sudan, as well as the former British Ambassador, and now an Associate Fellow with our Africa programme. A very warm welcome, Rosalind. Thank you. Joining us down the line from Washington, D.C. is Justin Lynch, a researcher who has written on Sudan and his work has appeared in Foreign Policy magazine as well as more recently on CNN. Welcome, Justin. Thank you very much. It's a real pleasure to be here. And finally, joining us is Professor Mohamed Hassan Al-Taishi, previously a member of Sudan's Transitional Sovereignty Council. Welcome to Chatham House, Mohamed. Uh, Thank you so much. Uh, Just to add that currently I am a senior peace fellow at PLBG, Public International Law and Policy Group. Thank you very much for that. And you're speaking to us from Khartoum at the moment. Thank you for managing to do that. All right, thank you. Well, let's start with how Sudan got into this position. Rosalind, I wonder if I can just start with you. Can you explain how Sudan ended up with two armies fighting each other, two generals even fighting each other. Yes, the the current war is in many ways a legacy of the Bashir era. Um, Firstly, because former President uh, Omar al-Bashir created this this large paramilitary rapid support force in 2013 um, from the former so-called Janjaweed, the Arab tribal militia, as a counterinsurgency force to crush the Darfur rebellion. And this it did quite successfully and was then also deployed um, to fight in the Yemen war um, in support of the Saudi-led coalition, for which the Rapid Support Force received quite a lot of money. And then in 2017, um, former President Bashir um, basically uh, brought the Rapid Support Forces into the regular forces, uh, reporting directly to him. Um, because he regarded the the rapid support force as um, a, a force that could protect him against some any possible coup by the Sudanese army, but as we know, as it turned out, uh, Himiti and his General uh, Mohammed Hamdan Dagalon, who's known as as Himiti, in in fact joined, um, and, and he's um, leading the rapid support forces. He's he's the leader of the rapid support forces. Yes, he um, joined with army officers in turning against uh, and overthrowing um, Bashir in April 2019. Um, And then um, after the overthrow, uh, General Bohan um, became uh, the head of the Sudanese army and he in turn empowered uh, General Himiti uh, politically by making him his deputy 
deputy chair of the Sovereign Council. Um, another factor in the sort of rise uh, of the rapid support force was the, the Himiti family's growing business empire, which was based uh, primarily on um, securing con- control of large gold mining operations in Darfur, um, but which has now been expanded to a number of other sectors. So as a result of all that, uh, General Hamiti became probably the richest man in Sudan. And he used um, some of that wealth to continue to recruit more and more soldiers um, to the Rapid Support Force, not just in Darfur, but across the country. Then um, the Rapid Support Force is now estimated to have around 100,000 troops, um, almost as big as the army itself, although unlike the army, they don't have any aircraft and um, they don't have as, as much sort of heavy artillery or, or, or major tanks. But the other important legacy of the Bashir era in this context was the politicisation of the army, um, whose senior um, officer, officer corps uh, became dominated by Islamists and loyalists of the Bashir regime. And it is that group which is thought now to have a very strong voice in the army's decision-making Um, in terms of how to prosecute the current war. Well, thank you for that. Justin, what can you tell us about what each side wants? Well, I think, you know, what we fear in Sudan is that the consequences of this could last for months and years. And I'm going to focus on the rapid support forces because I think that the history of the rapid support forces, as Rosalind was saying, I think is essential to understand how we got here and also where we are going to go next. Um, So the RSF are mostly a tribal militia um, that come from the western region of Sudan in Darfur. And they're from the Rezagat Maharia subclan. Uh, most of the soldiers in the RSF and Hamedi um, has, you know, very effectively been able to mobilize the Maharia community. And I think that one of the reasons why the consequences of this current conflict could continue for months and for years, you know, not only in Khartoum, but of course in Darfur, is because the Maharia have really a viewpoint of collective defense that's really critical to understanding why the conflict in Darfur, which started in 2003, has continued for so long, um, and why the consequences of what we're seeing today will continue as well. And I'll tell a brief story. I remember I was interviewing an RSF-affiliated soldier in September 2021 in Darfur. And in front of us was a village of some 30,000 people that the soldier had participated in burning down. Um, And so I asked him why he did it. You know, what was your motivation? And I think what's super interesting when you speak with the RSF soldiers and when you speak with the kind of broader um, Resigat community in Darfur is that they're very open and honest. They're not they're not hiding anything. He described to me how there was a fight in a local market um, and a member of his tribe had been killed. And the Resigat community kind of mobilized and and it resulted in the burning down of the um, Karanik displacement camp that was in West Darfur. And I think that this collective mobilization of the Resigat is really essential to understanding, like I said, you know, why the conflict in Darfur has continued and why the consequences of this current fighting we may see for years as well. The Resigat really don't view conflict as an eye for an eye. You know, you know, I think what we saw in 
Karenik and what we've seen for almost two decades now in Darfur is really an eye for a village. So I think that that collective framework for how the Rezagat approach um, conflict and community mobilization, I think is really essential to understanding where we are going to go. It's, of course, important to say that you know there is another side in the conflict in Darfur, and of course, there's another side in the conflict for the Sudanese armed forces. And it's important not to say that there's one party in this conflict, but I I think that's really essential to understanding where the RSF came from and where this conflict could go. Okay, and I was asking what each side wants, but maybe it's not as simple as that. Maybe you can't um, even answer that. I'd be curious what Rosalind and Altaishi think. I think that they might be better placed to answer that. You know, I think that what precipitated, what immediately came before this fighting was a security sector reform process that was pushed by the international community. And that really boiled over. And we've seen elements of this, of a similar security sector reform happened in South Sudan in 2013, 2016, and it had similar consequences. And so I think that understanding some of the drivers of the current fighting is essential to understanding what each side thinks. And so I think that both the RSF and the Sudanese armed forces, they were in a competition to mobilize their soldiers and in a competition for power, Mm. um, broadly speaking, in Sudan because of the security sector reform process. Mohammed, I'd love your thoughts on that. And I wondered if you could tell us as well what has happened to the civilian government. This is um, more complicated than uh, we ever think about it. Uh, The situation in Sudan is too complicated. And I think, in my opinion, this all started uh, from South Sudan Army's uh, 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 force. When it comes to an organization, army organization that's been created uh, by South, that's a long, long history. RSF is not the only uh, army organization be created by staff, but I can account tens of organizations being created and some of those um, um, uh, organizations still are uh, active collaborating with the, with the SAS. That's the fact. And that's not only in, in, in Darfur, that's in Darfur, that's in uh, South Sudan before the independent, that's in Luba Mountain and Blue, uh, Blue Nine. The only things now has different is RSF created an independent legacy of that uh, uh, organization being created by South. And this is where the problem gets started between RSF and past generals in first place. But let me go back to um, 25th of October 2021. Cool. So all this political dilemma uh, and differences started from there. When the Burhan and Hemeti got agreed to go for the coup, and they did that in 25th of October. And then not too long, I think um, only a few days when Hemeti discovered that has been dominated by Islamists and there is a genuine coup going behind the scenes. And one of those targeted not only the democracy in Sudan, but also uh, RSF itself. And then General Hemeti decided to turn the direction. And you all uh, see in the 21st of November agreement that's signed by former Prime Minister uh, Hamdok. Uh, that agreement having survived despite the effort that's been put in place from uh, Hemeti and his brother 
to stop the behind the scene coup created by Burhan and his allies from the Islamist. Um, and sadly, that didn't survive because Hamid, uh, Hamdok decided to resign. And then a new uh, course being uh, started between RSF and FFC, the civilians' uh, uh, coalition. That's coalition, that's conversations end up with the, which, which we call it uh, framework agreement. When the framework agreement was very clear, that um, uh, Hamidi was uh, too uh, ambitious about that agreement and and Burhan uh, faced many, many challenges inside his um, organization. There is some uh, Islamists inside the uh, army striking against the agreement and, and other, other many uh, challenges, even regional elements on that, on that problems. But um, when it comes to the security sector reform, I think there is a differences, no doubt about that, but I think the Islamists use that differences to create more hostile environment to prepare the ground for what happened last 12 uh, days. In my opinion, this is a political fight between the ass um, using by the Islamists trying to use the SAF and gaining the power again using those differences between RSF and SAF. Um, in my opinion, it's all about Khartoum. It's not about, um, it's too early to talk about civil, uh, civil war. Um, we had a civil war, um, so long time ago and, um, in Darfur and somewhere else. But I think this is an element of a political fight and it is about Khartoum. It may develop to be a civil war, but I think it's too early to talk about the civil war right now. Mohammed, thank you for that. And I'm going to take that almost as a tiny bit of optimism. Rosan, is it possible to say, or even to suggest at this point, where this might go? Well, I think it's too early to sort of tell militarily um, who's got the upper hand. I mean, as Mohammed was explaining, the real epicentre um, of this uh, this fighting at the moment is Khartoum. Although the fighting has spread to other parts of the country, particularly Darfur, um, clearly both of the uh, the warring generals regard trying to gain control of Khartoum as being absolutely crucial. And indeed, we've we've seen General Bohan uh, saying publicly that he would only be willing to consider negotiating if the rapid support forces were to pull their troops uh, completely out of Khartoum. Um, the other, I think, the other point we've seen is that one of the reasons that... Um, triggered this this conflict and one of the sort of factors that arose in the preceding couple of weeks before the fighting started was the question of security sector reform and the key issue there was how long it was going to take to in- integrate general hamiti's rapid support force into the army the general bohan wanted this c- to be done and completed within 2 years and general hamiti wanted to be to, to spin it out for a period of 10 years. And the reason for that difference is a question of political ambition, that the army, which has backing from elements of the former regime, I think probably wanted to get the rapid support force under their control before any possibility of holding general elections. Uh, General Himiti wanted to keep his his forces um, in existence for longer for that reason. So where, where this will go, I think, will also depend on 
the decision-making structure within the army. I mean, as Mehmed Hassan Artishi has explained, it does seem that the Islamist officers within the army are exerting a very strong influence over sort of the direction of this war at the moment. And a lot will depend on whether there's sufficiently strong international and regional pressure on both leaders to force them to come relatively quickly to the negotiating table, or whether hardliners, uh, perhaps on both sides, insist on continuing the fight in the hope of defeating the other side. Justin, during all this, does the civilian government, now dislodged, simply have to sit on the sidelines? I think that the current outlook for a civilian government looks very troubling at the moment. And I think the roots of that go back to 2019, during the revolution. So I think that there was a broad popular movement that removed the former dictator, Omar al-Bashir. And I think what you saw with the Sudanese Professionals Association the um, and the FFC, who were really behind the protests, mostly the um, Sudanese Professionals Association, which is the um, the collection of unions who are in Sudan, was that they struggled to translate their popular support into political power because of you know the kind of broad structures that it takes to topple a dictator has to be a very flat structure and the um, spa found that they struggled to transform overnight into more of a vertical organization that could make negotiations Um, and this is i think something that you see throughout the history of social movements, right, from the Arab Spring in Egypt and to Otpor in Serbia. And so the FFC, which is the collection of political parties um, who were, um, you know, most recently in power in 1985, um, you know, took took more of a prominent role. And you saw during this critical period in 2019 how the army was able to kind of claw back their power and their ability to stay in control of Sudan through this negotiation process that happened in 2019. The result of that in August, when the transitional constitution was signed, the deal was that the military would lead for the first 21 months of the transition, and then the civilians would lead for the following 18 months. And I remember speaking with Prime Minister Hamdok in, you know, maybe his third or fourth day in office. And it was very clear that he he understood that he didn't have a lot of power. And I think Al Taishi can you know, speak to more of this, but that, you know, the ability of civilians to really have a say in that government was really you know, hamstrung because of that political framework that was made. And, you know, the dates for the handover to civilian power were always were always kind of delayed. And so I think that the transitional period that ended in 2021, as Taishi was saying, you know, it was a it was a struggle to for the Prime Minister Hamdok and for everybody in his government to exert real authority. Well thank you for that. You put it very well. Let's Use that as a pivot to talk uh, more briefly about whether this conflict is going to spread, is going to inflame the horn of Africa. Um, Mohammed, I wondered whether you were worried that other countries, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, even Russia, are trying to influence events on the ground. Well, um, it is fair enough to say um, Sudan is a central um, uh, country when it comes to the Arab sides and African sides. There's no doubt about that. There is an, a regional conflict and element. Sudan play a major role on this. No, 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 
make no mistake to uh, highlight that. What is going on in, 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 in Ethiopia and the uh, damned and the conflict between Egypt and Sudan and uh, Ethiopia has absolutely influence over what is going on in Sudan for last four years. Um, Egyptian involvement on the political uh, di uh, dilemma here in Sudan is absolutely clear. And everybody can talk about that. This all started when there is an army force being landed in Marawi and they are doing the training, but that cannot take it away from the political situation going on in Sudan and going on between Sudan and uh, Ethiopia. That's number one. Number two, I think we all know the, the, the deep involvement of the uh, crisis going on in Libya. And there is many uh, armies groups, um, Sudanese armies groups uh, playing a role and um, involvement on that, on that situation. Um, what is going on in South Sudan? You know, there is an implementation of uh, political agreement in South Sudan that's been granted by Sudan itself. So all this situation make the conflict in Sudan by, by direct or indirect uh, 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 impact that would be, uh, uh, has consequences on the region uh, uh, in, in general. So no doubt about that. But I think let us take it what the other influence over the political uh, race here in Sudan itself. I think um, uh, until this stage, I could say um, Saudi Arabia and Emirates could play a positive role by asking both of the uh, conflict sites uh, for going for uh, a genuine uh, talk and open a way for a political uh, agreement that may be start from where we uh, uh, finished uh, about the uh, political pol uh, uh, political as as um, framework political agreement, but I think um, I think African Union and IGAT uh, fully understand this situation going in Sudan has absolutely consequences over the region itself, and that's why there is an effort going on to. Uh, control this crisis in Sudan. Justin, what's your sense of this just potential for wider instability? You know, my sense is that in some ways, the future of Sudan could be decided by Egypt and the UAE. And what I mean by that is that you know, there have been reports of um, Egypt and the UAE um, backing both sides. Um, Egypt is a supporter of the Sudanese armed forces, and the UAE has supported as um, Rosalind mentioned, the rapid support forces. And so I think that if that um, support and those weapons continue to flow, I think that what we could be seeing is a situation that would be similar to Yemen and Libya. I think that is just so, so troubling and so heartbreaking um, if that were to be the case. And so I think it's really essential that those you know regional countries refrain from doing that because it, it, it would, I think, just be heartbreaking. Rosalind, can uh, other countries encourage regional countries to refrain from doing that? Well, I think this is why it's so important for, say, the British government working with the United States and other international partners to um, not only apply maximum pressure to the two generals to, to, to um, stop the fighting and come to the table, but also to put pressure on these regional countries to refrain from any temptation to, to supply military support or indeed financial support to either side. 
I mean, I think, as, as Justin mentioned, I think the role of the Egyptians has obviously been quite prominent. They clearly have clearly been a supporter of uh, General Bohan and the Sudanese army, um, I think partly because they... They regard the, the situation in Sudan as critical for their national security. They're reluctant to see somebody who they regard as a militia leader in sort of political control in Sudan, but also because they want to try and uh, influence the Su- Sudanese government to side with them in the negotiations with Ethiopia over the Grand Renaissance Dam. Um, many of the Sudanese army officers, including General Bohan, have trained in military academies in Egypt, so the relationship is close. So um, the Egyptian position will be crucial. And as far as the United Arab Emirates is concerned, yes, they've had links in the past with Hamiti, both in the war in Yemen and, and also in Libya. But um, the UAE also has links to um, the army. Uh, they've recently m- m- announced a big investment um, with the Dal Group in a big port and agricultural uh, development scheme um, in uh, the eastern Sudan. Um, and that's that's so sort of a they, close, a close relationship they've got with, with both sides. Yeah. And briefly, if if one can briefly, what about Russia? Uh, well, the Russian interest is um, in terms of the national Russian government. They're very interested in getting a, a naval base on the Red Sea coast, and that was originally something they'd negotiated with President Bashir. And since the revolution, they've been trying to persuade the successor government to um, allow that that deal to go ahead, which so far it, 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 has, it has not proceeded, partly because of some regional resistance. So that is one factor in their thinking. The other, of course, is the, inf- the involvement of the Wagner Group, um, which has had close links with uh, the Rapid Support Force, particularly in terms of cooperation in gold mining operations. There's been a lot of um, media reporting about uh, the fact that a lot of this gold have smuggled out of Sudan and m- much of it may have made its way to Russia uh, to help it uh, pursue the war in Ukraine. Um, the Russians also have a, a big involvement at the moment in the Central African Republic and Sudan has been a sort of transit route for them in that connection. So the answer, I think, is yes. Just to add that in 2019, I uh, was in Sudan during the uh, protests and in the aftermath and I remember RSF soldiers would speak to me in Russian because I guess I look a little Russian and they had clearly obviously been trained by either the Wagner group or, um, you know, the Russian military itself. And over a number of years, you would see, you know, the Wagner group and, you know, the Russian, the Russians across Khartoum and I would interview RSF officials um, and speak with them. And they were pretty blunt about how they had Russian um, officials who were stationed inside RSF facilities. Um, so I think that the link is 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 quite close. Yeah, well, thanks for adding that. I'm not going to comment on whether you look Russian. Let's go finally to this question, also much in the papers at the moment, about, uh, anyway, it's lost on a podcast audience. Um, let, let's um, go finally to this question, a uh, sobering question, much in the papers about evacuation. And Mohammed, I wanted to ask you um, how worried you are about Sudanese citizens who are fleeing Sudan. I have to say that a lot of Sudanese people now um, flee the, the, the country, but the vast majority are fleeing the capital to the um, neighborhood state. Um, and I, I, in, my, in my assessment, I think 
uh, 90% of the uh, Sudanese people from the capital flee the capital, not outside the country, but uh, to the neighbor, neighboring uh, uh, state uh, like Al Jazeera State and uh, White Nile State and Kurdufa, South Kurdufan State and so on. But there is a lot of people also um, directed to uh, Egypt. Um, you can see a lot of families and um, as the same people also um, flee to Ethiopia and a few of people also flee to South uh, Sudan. Uh, so far, there is struggle because a lot of people just trying to travel in one time. So it's so hard for those countries to handle this uh, situation uh, uh, as we all uh, uh, hoping for. But I think a lot of people now in, 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 in Egypt and, and the same people, I think, uh, same uh, number of people in Ethiopia and few of them in, 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 in uh, uh, South Sudan. But the vast majority flee to the uh, neighborhood state. And um, perhaps I could just, just add to that, just to say that I know that um, quite a lot of Sudanese are concerned that um, once uh, the international community has evacuated its diplomats and, uh, and many of its nationals, that then there's a real risk that uh, the real all-out conflict will intensify um, and that uh, the Sudanese who have not been able to flee the capital for various reasons will be then real targets. So there's this real concern. Um, but as Mohammed said, I mean, there are, it, it's, it's an unusual situation because in the past, um, the, the, most of the conflict in Sudan has been in the peripheral zones of the country and people have fled from Darfur or Nanuba Mountains to Khartoum for relative safety. Now we're seeing the reverse. We're seeing people from the national capital sort of fleeing, fe- fleeing from there to get to the other states. Um, so, you know, this is a real reverse of the historical trend. Yeah, uh, before I can add that, um, if you allow me in two minutes, please. Mm. I think, I think, yes, the, uh, the, the war going on in Khartoum is very new for the people who are living here in, in, in the capital. So uh, fleeing has a good reason why the people just can't stay. But the more, the more reason of that is the using aircraft, um, in, 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 inside the, in that, inside the cupboard. So many, many uh, civilian areas being hit, uh, a lot of people being, uh, killed because of using that, uh, aircraft, uh, uh, bond. So I think, um, the international community absolutely has a good reason to, um, to flee this, this, this capital. Justin, evacuation. To be honest, you know, I don't have a whole lot to say on the evacuations. Um, you know, I think like Rosalind said, um, I think that we're still concerned about Sudanese um, now and, and that now that, you know, diplomats and foreigners have left that, that, you know, Sudanese will be stranded. Rosalind, I have to ask you, it is all over the UK papers. What do you make of the UK evacuation efforts and the criticism mm. that's come in? Well, a number of people have, of course, commented that the optics don't look so good of evacuating diplomats before British nationals. But I think, you know, the government has explained that the small diplomatic team in Khartoum was essentially locked down in their houses, um, unable to really perform their jobs in terms of helping the, the British community. Um and also, I think the government, conscious also, no doubt, of the, the, the example of what happened in Afghanistan, was uh, 
keen to ensure that if they did try to mount any kind of evacuation effort to help uh, British citizens, that they wouldn't be putting them in really in harm's way. We've seen that uh, the British citizens have now been advised to make their own way to this airbase, what he said, just uh, north of, of Khartoum. But it's it's still uh, quite dangerous trying to get through the streets uh, because of the presence of armed men and shelling going on. So it sounds as though there has been a sufficient lull in the fighting with this latest ceasefire um, to enable several hundred British nationals to get to the airport. Um, and I think that's where the main focus of the government's attention has been, to sort of try and um, try and press for a, 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 the safest environment that can be negotiated at that point to enable citizens to get out safely. Just to add that I think that, you know, pressing for a ceasefire as the UK and as the US and as the international community has done, although it has not been fully effective, you know, is surely the best option um, for evacuation, just given the logistical realities of trying to um, extract individuals in the middle of a conflict where there are, are airstrikes, there are running street battles. It's hard to think of another plausible scenario that would allow citizens to be evacuated. And so I think that, you know, I think if a lot of citizens, um, you know, knew the behind the scenes efforts that were taking place, I think they would be very surprised um, at at kind of how um, in depth it is. And very possibly the best of the people of Sudan as well. Mohammed, can I come to you right at the end? Because we're now wrapping up. What is it like right now in Khartoum? Well, um, I've just helped my, my children to sign up to Wadi Saidna um, Airbase to flee to London from sa- from south end of Khartoum, which um, Giat, uh, Rosalind may, may know this direction as well, to 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 north of the capital, uh, where is uh, Halfaya, just after Halfaya Bridge. So all this, all this, all this area, I walked through this uh, morning, and um, it's like two hours and 50 minutes. Um, this all dominated by RSS. There is a one uh, point just after the uh, uh, Hellfire Bridge that's, that's controlled by the, by the uh, uh, SAFs, just um, on, 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 on the gate of the Wadi Saidna uh, base. Uh, but I, as I'm speaking, I can hear, I can hear, Again, outside my window, and the 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 despite the ceasefire being signed between two uh, parties, but the war is going on sadly, sadly since the first day, and there is uh, aircraft uh, involved, there is um, a big gun involved, there is a movement of army involved. So I cannot talk about ceasefire at all in this in this in this city. This this is the question that my 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 um, seven years old daughter asked me just before left um, to the uh, to the to the uh, airport. Uh, this is my responsibility. I've been part of this since 2019, and the most important thing is I can see my country is a very crisis that's ever ever. Had in in its recent life, so it is a time for me and others of uh, my colleagues, my Sudanese people, to stay and help to fix this uh, problem 
before this is spread to the whole uh, country and then we can face a civil, a civil, a civil war, thus it may absolutely be uh, destroying for this country and I guess the, the, the neighbor's country as well. So I am staying here to help my people to work with other people to fix this crisis as soon as possible. Well, thank you. There could not be a stronger statement of loyalty and dedication. Take care. We're thinking of you. With that, we're going to have to finish. A big thank you to all my guests, Mohammed Hassan Alteshi, Rosalind Marsden, Justin Lynch. A reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow, subscribe to us. Please do leave us a review. And to read more from all of our experts or to find more about our events, and we have lots of them, or to become a member, and we'd love to have you, don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, where you can follow the work of all our programmes. And this week, our Africa programme has been covering Sudan extensively, and my colleague Ahmed Soliman in particular writing and speaking widely on that. Next week is Coronation Week here in the UK. We'll be looking to another island nation, one with tempestuous relations with its neighbours, a monarchy struggling to find its place in the modern world, and one who is increasingly reliant on the US for security. Does that sound familiar? We're going to Japan with a bit of King Charles thrown in. Goodbye from me, Roman Maddox. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 